Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. Well, it's finally time to turn the page and start a new chapter of Elm. In fact, this might be more than a chapter. This might even be a whole new volume of Elm pages. There are two volumes before, <laughs> but by adding a third volume, we've got a full stack of books about Elm pages now. <laughs> We are going to talk about Elm Pages once more. <laughs> yep. And we are not going to talk about Elm Pages Alpha. We are not going to talk about Elm Pages Beta. We are not going to talk about a soon-to-be-released Elm Pages. We are talking about a stable release of Elm Pages V3. Finally! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've covered Elm Pages in a bunch of episodes, like... Our very first episode was about Elm Pages. What is Elm Pages? And that was for V1. V2 was released in between. We've done a few other episodes, uh, including recently one about Elm Pages scripts. But that was still yet to be released. But now everything is released. Dylan is now finally done with his work. He can now retire. (laughs) (laughs) At the very least, I can think about other things because it really felt like there are so many pieces to Elm Pages and I, I sympathize with users for um, the the number of concepts that are available in the framework to grok. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was quite a journey to just juggle all those concepts and constantly try to think of better ways to simplify things and how those pieces fit together. And then keep doing that over and over until all the pieces fit together really elegantly. Like I, I came up with a lot of very new techniques that I haven't seen in an Elm framework yet. Uh, so it was, it, yeah, it was quite an experience. <laughs> yeah. All right. So for the few people who have not heard about Elm Pages yet, or <laughs> right. who have for not our l- one listener who doesn't know <laughs> what Elm Pages is, <laughs> oh. Or who hasn't re-listened to all the episodes since the beginning. <laughs> yes. Yeah, maybe uh, tell us what Elm Pages is. And then we can after that, afterwards talk about like what is new in V3. So yeah, w- what is Elm Pages? Yeah. So the, w- the way I think about it, Elm Pages, number one, Elm Pages is Elm. It's an extension of Elm. So uh, everything you understand about Elm, you can apply that understanding to Elm Pages. So it's just Elm. It's just Elm. It's just Elm. And it's a, uh, it's a single page app in Elm. So um, Elm Pages is a way to build a single page app. But it's a single page app that extends the traditional Elm architecture. So whereas the Elm architecture gives you an init update view and it renders client side. So you, you load, you know, usually sort of an empty HTML skeleton that if you turn off JavaScript, it's a blank page. If you turn on JavaScript, it's a it's a blank page until it hydrates the the client side rendering. Uh, it doesn't hydrate isn't actually the appropriate term there until it executes initial JavaScript executes the JavaScript exactly yeah. parses and mm-hmm. executes the JavaScript. Um, Elm Pages, for one thing, it it pre renders out the HTML and it does that with a special addition to the to the lifecycle of the traditional Elm Elm architecture. So the traditional Elm architecture, you have init, it can kick off some commands, and then it renders a view with your init. 
Um, and it does that all on the client side. In Elm Pages, it, it runs init on the server. So it, it actually takes the Elm app you, you write and it runs it in two places. It runs it on the server and it runs it on the client in the browser. And so, it, yes, it, it runs it twice and it creates two applications because the, uh, the server one is running without a browser. It's running a headless application, but it runs your init and it renders your view with your init without running any of the commands from init. It just takes your data from init and it renders that to an HTML string. And then that is the initial response that's sent to the client. So the client has a fully rendered HTML view before the JavaScript takes over the page. Now the, so that's one thing Elm Pages adds. The other thing that's a really big piece of what Elm Pages adds is uh, your, your routes have something called data. That is an extension to the traditional Elm architecture's init update view. So data is something where you define, um, in Elm Pages v3, it's called a backend task. In v2, it was called a data source. But that's a declarative way to define data, very similar to a, uh, an, an Elm core task. So, you know, you can have an HTTP request as a task and you can transform that all into some data type. So when that task resolves, uh, you end up with some data. And that data is resolved fully on the server. It's resolved on the backend, as the name backend task implies. And then that data is available before init is called, before your view is ever called. And so, whereas with um, a traditional LMAP, um, there's, there's no data before init, um, unless you pass in flags. And sometimes people do pass in flags with data from the server, right, to sort of bootstrap the page. Maybe it's like a Rails app or whatever server rendering framework. So actually, I think a really good way to think about the Elm Pages architecture is a sort of a abstraction over that pattern. It's a, it's a way to make that pattern really easy for you to manage, where you, you do all of that in, in pure Elm and you don't have to like write all the glue code to do that. But that's essentially what it's doing. It's saying, hey, before we load this page, since we're serving up this request from a server, we may as well just resolve some data and put that in the page basically as a flag. And that, it actually is doing that under the hood. So you have some data that is available as flags and it's there before init is called. That's, that's exactly the mental model for an Elm Pages app for, for the, the route modules data. Your data is available um, before view is ever called, unlike the commands that you return in, in your init function which are available after view is called, right? So you have loading spinners and intermediary states in your model to deal with. So that's really at the heart of, of Elm Pages. It's about um, getting that data before your page loads and everything that comes from that. So for example, one thing that comes out of that pattern is you have uh, fewer intermediary states to deal with, fewer loading spinners. The user uh, doesn't have flashes of loading spinners coming in. Does it also resolve errors? Like if you ask for some kind of data, then you're sure to get the data. Otherwise, the user will get a 400 or 500 page error page. Yes. Okay, so right. you, you also don't have to handle those error states. That's pretty nice. 
it takes those out of your happy path. So the way this works in, in Elm Pages V2, there was only one mode, which was rendering your pages at build time. It was a static site generator. Uh, Elm Pages V3 is a hybrid framework that supports both static site generation with, with something that's called uh, pre-rendered routes. And then there are server rendered routes. So uh, in the pre-rendered routes, if your backend task has an error, then that results in a build failure. And you can, you know, so, oh, this API is down. Well, okay, then don't, don't push that site live. Or if you want to, you can, uh, you can handle an HTTP, HTTP failure with whatever logic you want, retrying the HTTP request, falling back to some data, falling back to a cached response. You can use all of these types of strategies. You can write general purpose Elm code to, to handle these errors. And that's, that's actually been a big part of the V3 release of Elm pages, partially because if you're doing server rendering, you're, you want more fine-grained control over your error handling. Because if it's just a static site, something goes wrong, fail the build, and let me play around with it and fix it. If it's server rendered, if something goes wrong, you might want more nuanced control. You, you know, maybe it's just that you show an error page, but you want to give really good information in that error page instead of just giving a 500 with no information. You know, maybe you want to respond <clears throat> like maybe an API gives you strange error codes or fails in strange ways, but it actually is just because it's a 404. This, this page doesn't exist for this user or you're not authorized or whatever it is. And you want to handle that in a more sophisticated way. But so with Elm Pages V3, there's something called a fatal error. We talked about that a little bit in our uh, Elm Pages scripts episode. And um, as I mentioned in that episode, I think that Elm Pages scripts are a very good way to get acquainted with these concepts around backend tasks and fatal errors. But uh, to, to summarize briefly, a backend task has an error type, just like the Elm core task type has an error type variable and a data type variable. And in Elm Pages, the places that accept a backend task, like your route module's data function, you return a backend task. The error type it, it accepts for that backend task is something called fatal error. And fatal error is, is uh, just a, something that represents an error message that you can present if there's a build failure for a pre-rendered route or if there's a 500 error. That's really all it is. But um, Elm Pages is able to accept something of the fatal error type. You can build your own fatal errors if you want and just say, I want to bail out. I just uh, I want to just fail the build with an error message if I encounter this case. You can create your own fatal error type as well. All right. So is it, it of course, it's going to be a simplification, but basically Elm Pages is a static side generator, which in V3 now has also server-side rendered um, routes and something called Elm Pages scripts, which allows you to run arbitrary scripts written in Elm slash Elm Pages. Right. So that, that might sound like a lot of disparate concepts. The way I would frame it that um, makes sense to me is Elm Pages is a tool centered around this concept called a backend task. A backend task. Oh, so it's Elm backend task. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. So that is ah. the heart of Elm Pages. And it always has been in my, in my heart. Deep in my heart, it's always been the heart of Elm Pages. Maybe my heart is the heart of Elm Pages. I don't know. But what, what it's all about is 
it's a way to declaratively resolve data. So the backend task API gives you um, <clears throat> a, a, a way of resolving data on a backend, right? So it's a regular Elm core task. You can resolve data. You know, you can say scroll to this position as a task, or you know, you you there are a handful of web APIs that are exposed as tasks. Those don't exist in backend task because they're, they're tasks that run on the backend. On the other hand, an Elm core task cannot run things in Node.js. It cannot read a file. It cannot perform a, a glob to list out files matching a certain pattern. Uh, it cannot read environment variables, right? And those are often handy things to have if you're um, also, it's not executing in a secure trusted environment. So even if you had a way to, to pull in environment variables uh, in an Elm core task, which executes in the browser, you wouldn't want to pull in secrets because suddenly you've revealed your secrets for doing admin database queries or using your open AI API token. And now you're getting slammed with requests from people who stole your token and are, you know, Use it using that for their requests or whatever, right? So you can't do that. With a backend task, you can't because it executes in a trusted, secure environment. So that is that is the difference between a task and a backend task. It, 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 and it has a whole uh, suite of APIs designed for abstracting over that. For example, the glob API, backendtask.glob, gives you a way to... It, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way you express this. You, you sort of are able to parse out parts of the file path. So you, you can say things matching star.md, but you don't do it as a string. So you can capture just that star part. You can, you can capture that into an Elm type, just like if you're writing up a JSON decoder using a similar pattern, right? So these APIs are built in a way where you're doing that. So it's not just like a very light wrapper that lets you execute things in a backend context, but it's like a really thought out API for, for, doing these types of tasks um, nicely in Elm and parsing them into nice Elm types. So, so that's the heart of it. It's this backend task concept. The backend task, yeah. It, it, so just to finish that thought, it allows you to execute things in a backend context. It's secure, so you can use secrets. You can read files. You can pull in environment variables. You can, you can do expensive data processing and things like that before something ever reaches the page, whether that's at build time where you do a lot of expensive computation, reading in a bunch of files, uh, parsing that in some format, organizing that in some dictionary and sorting it and counting things and counting the number of occurrences of the most frequent words or phrases or whatever, whatever expensive thing, you can execute those things and then have have them uh, have the result of those. And then that's just, if it's a, uh, a static page, that's just part of your static page that's pre-computed. Or if it's server rendered, you don't have to pay that cost uh, on the client. Uh, and, and you don't even need to pull in the, the code in your bundle for things that only run on the backend. So, so at the heart of Elm Pages is a backend task. Elm Pages is a framework that's centered around uh, different ways to use a backend task. A, a static route, pre-rendered routes, can use a backend task to uh, have the backend task available 
before the, the view is rendered, you can render the head tags for SEO purposes that give you things like the nice social media previews for Twitter and Slack and things like that. That is there in the rendered HTML, which um, a lot of these tools for social previews don't execute JavaScript. So you need pre-rendered HTML in order to display those. So on pages provides that, right? But how does it provide that if you if you don't have access to your initial page data before you do that? So backend task is kind of a core thing around that. Backend task is a core thing around server rendered routes because you resolve this data again in a secure environment in a backend task. If you want to respond to, to a user clicking a pay now button uh, by running something in Stripe, or if you want to respond to a Stripe web, web hook or whatever you want to do, backend task is the core of how that is done. And backend task is the core of how an Elm Pages script is done. An Elm Pages script is just a, a, a little helper that lets you easily execute a backend task. Um, and it also lets you parse command line flags that you can use in that context of your backend task. But again, it's all just centered around this concept of a backend task. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I haven't seen it that way, uh, but it does make things a lot more, but it does make a lot of, a lot of sense. Yeah, it's more, more coherent when you think about it that way, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically what you did is you made this concept of backend task and you added a lot, a lot of primitives to, to get the contents of a file, to, get, uh, to make HTTP requests uh, ahead of time, ahead of render time, let's say, or JavaScript execution time client, on the client. And then you, you ask yourself in a way, like, where should this apply? And for Elm Pages v1 and v2, that was, well, this is for the front end. Like, we're executing something at build time, and then you have some data, and that is sent to, to the front end as plain HTML, and then there's some hydration or re-execution of the Elm code. And now with Elm Pages, you've made this apply for more things. So you have Elm Pages scripts, so it's like, well, we have all these nice things uh, that are to get the contents of files, to write to files, to, to do things like that. Would be nice to just be able to, to run them to see, like, what is, if I run this code, do I get what I, what I expect? without having to run this whole server-side rendering machine. And then you also have this server-side rendering because that's something that apparently the web community uh, expects or wants and has a lot of uh, value, which let, let's get, uh, let's talk about that uh, in a bit. But yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. And I'm kind of wondering like, would you, if you knew that this was the core part of the, the yeah. package or the, the mm. tool because it's more mm. than just a package would you have called it differently because it, it like it's elm pages but like the elm pages scripts has nothing to do with pages and it doesn't have to be anymore i'm guessing if you had if you had renamed it to something else uh when it was still in v2 you would have called you would have called it elm data source which you would be unhappy with today i'm guessing <laughs> yeah yeah, and I'm not sure Elm backend task really captures what you do with it either. But I don't know, maybe like yeah, maybe maybe as an underlying package of Elm pages. Maybe like Elm backend. I don't know. But then it's like, well, oh, Elm backend. It's like, well, can you 
do things with a friend. It's like, yeah, it's about interopping <laughs> with with a friend between a friend and a back end. So yeah, it's it's hard to name. It if anybody has a, a genius name, definitely let me know. But uh, it, yeah, it, it's but also like I think I mentioned this in the scripts episode we did. But the 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 origin of Elm Page's scripts was that I was actually wanting to to build more customizable scaffolding. Elm Page's V2 had an add route command and or Elm Page's add command that let you add new routes that would scaffold out the starting template for a new route. And and I wanted to make that more customizable. If you, you know, if, if you want to use um, Elm UI or Elm CSS, Elm Tailwind modules, if you have a specific um, pattern that you use in your in all of your routes that you want to bake into it, whatever that might be. So, so when you say scaffolding, you mean like um, that the tool creates a blank file or a few blank files with some predetermined data in there. Like maybe if you say, uh, I'm just imagining something, like if I do Elm pages add uh, slash users slash ID or however that's is users.id or something. Yeah, or yeah, you do it like an Elm module name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if if I do Elm pages add users dot mm -hmm. ID underscore underscore the dynamic one. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. ID mm -hmm. is a dynamic thing. Mm -hmm. Then I would get a Elm module mm -hmm. at the right mm -hmm. position and it would contain like, oh, uh, a comment saying this renders at slash users slash colon ID, something like that. And it actually would because it uses file-based routing. So it would create a file in the appropriate place for, for that route module. And then I'm guessing an init view update. Right. And the view would be view.placeholder because your view might be Elm CSS or Elm HTML or Elm UI, right? So having a user maintained module called view.elm with a type alias view being whatever type their view is and a user maintained function called placeholder, which renders out the placeholder, let me scaffold out something with the view using the same pattern that that Ryan came up with for uh, Elm SPA. And that was great, but it was like, well, I want to make it more customizable than that. And I and I also like if you can if you want to have uh, if you want to be able to pass in CLI arguments to customize how you're generating it. If you want to generate it with some GraphQL query or some HTTP request or some like the sky's the limit. There are so many things you could do. Or maybe you want to scaffold out modules that aren't even route modules. Maybe they're helper modules for defining some backend tasks or whatever it may be. So I just wanted to make that more customizable in general. And so I, I knew I wanted to basically say, well, I, I want to have a way to make, make scaffolding more customizable. And I would love to do that using Elm code gen. So you can write Elm code to generate your Elm code for these modules. But... I also want to be able to pull in HTTP data, pull in environment variables, read files if I want to read a config file, things like that, right? So it's like, well, okay, I want to be able to execute backend tasks in this context when I'm running the scaffolding script to generate a file. And then I'm like, you know what? Like if I just make, like there's very little difference between like a custom scaffolding script and just a script, 
So why don't I just make a script feature and the scaffolding script is just a special case of that. So that's, that's what I ended up with. Mm, nice. So for instance, like, I know it's like not the best uh, use of it, but if I want to customize my scaffolding, I could create a backend task that gets the current time and then inject a comment saying, this was generated on, the, yes. on this date. Right. Absolutely. Okay. That's, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Terrible use, but uh, I mean, why not? But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can, you can read configuration from some JSON configuration file and use that to generate something. And the sky's the limit. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm really curious to see what people come up with or what they Me use too. it for. Yeah. Not to go down a rabbit hole, but I, uh, there's a new feature where you can execute an Elm Pages script pointing to uh, a GitHub gist or a link to a, uh, a raw GitHub file, including a branch, or, uh, or just pointing to a GitHub repo, and then you provide a path to a script. So I'm really excited to see what people do with scripts now that it's like much more shareable. You can just have a gist that has your scaffolding and your, uh, you know, whatever whatever logic for a little helper script you have so uh, scripts are a lot more shareable now and a lot easier to play around with has that last feature you talked about been released it's released yeah okay i haven't done an announcement post but it's released and it's stable yeah okay i was i was thinking it wasn't released yet i'm like dylan like we should finally talk about things that have been released. Like, <laughs> this is a bad right. habit. <laughs> you should, this is an intervention. Let's talk about things that have been released. But okay, it has been released. I have nothing Turned to say. Turned over a new leaf. It's released. <laughs> so we should probably talk about the, the big headline of Elm Pages V3, which is server rendered routes. So first of all, maybe we should define server rendering and what what that's uh, in contrast to so, yeah, so, so and also you say server rendered routes mm-hmm. and yes the, the term that right. i hear from the Jav, javascript ecosystem is ssr server-side rendering is that the same yes. thing are the difference it is yeah it's exactly okay. the same thing but but you, your title your your name is better for some reason that you're going to explain it now uh, well, in in the context of an Elm Pages app, you can have a pre-rendered route or a server-rendered route. The pre-rendered route, the backend task is resolved at build time. It results in a pre-rendered HTML file on disk, which your hosting provider can serve up or through a CDN or however you want to do that. Like a static HTML file? Yep, you get a static file. Uh, you also get a static uh, file called content.dat for that URL. And that contains the serialized data for your route. Now, the reason for that, so uh, remember before I mentioned that conceptually you can, you can use the mental model of, you know, like a Rails app that bootstraps some server data and passes them through Elm flags. So um, uh, that, uh, that is actually what exactly what happens if you load an initial page in your browser with HTML. But then if you click a link, it's not loading an HTML page. So if you click a link, it's actually loading just a single file. It doesn't load the HTML because it doesn't need that because it 
is now in single-page app mode. So it's hydrated into an Elm single-page app. Now it only needs that data for the page. So that's what the content.dat is for. So if you, you know, if you have a, you know, blog slash uh, introducing v3 post, that has some, the markdown data, the parsed markdown data and the published date and whatever other data is resolved for that, that route's data is serialized as, as bytes in a byte format there. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that gets downloaded by the browser. Exactly. That's so, in the metadata or the head tag. Exactly. So the Elm pages framework itself, in, when it's running in the browser, it knows when you click on a link to go fetch the corresponding data. So it can, you know, it's a single page app, but it knows before I change routes to this page, I'm going to need this data. And is that JSON in practice? In V2, it was JSON. Th- that is then sent to to the init function as flags. In in uh, it's all it's all binary, uh, and it uses the Lambda wire encoders to encode that data to binary. In, in V3, okay. Yeah. So Lambda. So and uh, I think this is worth being explicit about. So, lam- there are two meanings of Lambda. One is a compiler, and one is a hosting platform. Elm Pages V3 has nothing to do with Lambda, the hosting platform. Lambda, the hosting platform is awesome. You should definitely use that if you want a Lambda app, an app that is using WebSockets to have multiple connected clients sending real-time data and doing evergreen migrations. Awesome platform. Nothing to do with Elm Pages V3. Elm Pages V3 uses the Lambda compiler which is, it's exactly like the Elm compiler, but it adds a couple of things, including the ability to automatically serialize or deserialize an Elm type. And that is how in V3, Elm pages manages taking that data, which is resolved on the server, and then hydrating that on the client. And this is actually a huge uh, improvement in Elm pages V3, because in, in Elm pages V2, there was something called optimized decoders, which uh, I think we talked about at length in the Elm Pages V2 episode. So, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about it at length again now. Well, fortunately, you can forget about all of those concepts that you that you learned, and I'm sorry if you uh, spent time uh, learning and mastering those concepts. But fortunately, you get all of those same benefits with uh, Elm Pages V3 without having to learn any of that or without having to import a drop-in replacement for JSON decoders, which is what optimized decoder was. You no longer have to worry about your data being, sensitive data being used. So like Elm Pages v2, there was like this design, when you when you do an HTTP request, you could, you had to wrap it in this secrets thing, which basically would obfuscate any secrets in the JSON data. Because what it needed to do is it needed to basically mark every bit of data you depended on as you resolved your data sources and pull in the corresponding JSON. And it did like basically key value pairs with the definition of the request it was pulling from to the data for that request. So it had to scrub out sensitive data in the request in the keys of the JSON values. And it had to go and mark all the things. That's what optimized decoders did is they would mark the things that were needed and only and strip out all of the data that wasn't used. It was very complicated to build, uh, but it it allowed you to like make an 
an API request in a data source that pulled in some JSON data, but only used a few keys, but it wouldn't pull in all of the JSON data. But uh, with, with V3, it just resolves all of the data in your backend task. Uh, that resolves to your whatever your route module's data type is. And then it, it just serializes that data type. So you don't have to worry about what data you had that went into resolving that data. It's just what is the final data type that gets serialized in a binary format and then passed in when your page is hydrated or when you navigate to a new page, it gets downloaded. So much simpler and much more performance. Nice. Yes. And better for uh, security as well, which was one of the main motivations too, is I was like, if you're doing server-side stuff, I don't want you ha to have to think about like, am I pulling in sensitive data? So Yeah, because, because it was still possible to mess it up and to expose secrets. Yeah, even though there was a whole affordance for, for working with that, it, it it's something that you could get wrong. So you no longer have to think about that at all. And it's more compact binary data. So it's a win-win. You do need to ensure that your route module's data type, uh, there's a type called data. Usually it's a, a record type alias data. You do need to ensure that it does not contain any non-serializable data, namely functions. Functions are not serializable. And data structures that contain functions are not serializable. Some of them are surprising, like HTML. Under the hood actually contains functions in Elm's implementation. So yeah, that's unfortunately not HTML serializable. HTML to map. Exactly. Yeah, if you have a map, right, exactly. That's right. Okay, so server-side rendering and or server-rendered routes, SRR. SSR, yeah. Should we talk about what you can do with server-rendered routes? Yeah. What is it for? What can you do? Why is it better? Why is it worse sometimes? Let's, let's first talk about what it, what it is. Yeah. And you're right to ask, when is it better? When is it worse? Because so someone asked about this in the Elm Pages Slack channel recently. And my, my answer was, if you, if you don't need fresh data, like a blog, you know, like if you, if you publish, uh, if, if you're running a news site and somebody edits content, there's a typo or a correction or some emergency report with an update or something like that. And you want it to instantly be reflected when somebody loads the page, then then server-side rendering is going to be a good approach. So a server-rendered route would, would be a good fit for that. But if it's a blog and you're like, okay, I published something and within, within a few minutes, it's live, then I would go with um, a pre-rendered route. And the reason is because um, we've discussed this before, with a pre-rendered route, you have the ability to essentially uh, parse don't validate your initial route data with any errors being parsed out of the happy path to a build error. Whereas with a server rendered route, it gets parsed out to a 500 error. So that's one thing you have to deal with. Now, if you're building a CRUD application or like things happen and you can't guarantee that every service will always be up, right? So you do have to deal with that possibility. But if it's just like a little blog or a portfolio site or something like that, it's just like, you don't want to have to put that much thought into how you respond to those types of errors. You're just like, well, if something's wrong, then I'll just build it later or try to fix it. And you, you can mix and match them. For instance, uh, if you have a news uh, website, 
then you can use uh, server rendered routes for the content, but the about page can be a pre-rendered route. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And can you also have like plain Elm pages, like the way that we currently do it without Elm pages, just a blank HTML? Right. In other words, a client-side rendered page. You cannot. In theory, it would be uh, definitely possible to do that, but uh, at the moment, Elm pages does not have that. So you know, you can have a a page with an empty backend task with a backend task that's just backend task dot succeed empty record or whatever. But but yeah, there's no feature that it, it will still fetch that empty data before it loads your page. Also, something that I've been wondering like for ever since we started recording is like, can you have can you mix the pre-rendered routes and the server rendered routes into one in the sense that can you have a backend task that resolves at build time, but that is then used for a server rendered route? So like par parts of the things that I need for this page are computed at build time and other things are computed at render time. Is it possible to have both? That is not possible, but I mean, you could always like have an LPages script that pre-computes some data and use a codec to deserialize it or, but yeah. Um, so the options are, there's one we haven't talked about actually, pre-rendered route, which is the uh, backend task data is resolved at build time. And of course you, uh, you have a standard Elm architecture, so you can also use your init update to um, perform HTTP requests and that sort of thing. There's also um, server rendered routes, which we've talked about. And then there is something called pre-render with fallback. So pre-render with fallback will pre-render a set of pages for the route. Uh, but then it will dynamically execute the backend task for that route for anything that wasn't a pre-computed page in there. So you basically give it a list of pages. It's actually a backend task of a list of, of pages. And then, um, it's going to go, so like, for example, your most popular or recent articles could be pre-rendered. Pre and then your archive, which, you know, maybe your archive from 1932 is not requested very frequently. So you don't want your entire build to have to build your entire archive. But if somebody requests it, then you build it. And once it's built, it will cache that. So... Uh, Pre-render with fallback is interesting because it it really depends on your hosting provider how it's going to be actually implemented. But so with with Netlify, they have something called DPR Distributed Persistent Rendering, which is like a weird kind of marketing buzzword, I guess. But they basically have this idea of of exactly that pattern. And if you use a pre-rendered, if you use pre-render with fallback with the Netlify adapter then that's, that's what you get. And you can define different ways to, to handle those types of routes with different uh, hosting platforms through Elm Pages adapters. Adapters are the way that you take, you take an Elm Pages app. When you run Elm Pages build, it will run your adapter, which you define in the Elm Pages config file, um, elmpages.config.mjs. Uh, it's a JavaScript file, and you, you can import an adapter. 
the default adapter in the starter is a Netlify adapter that will execute the, um, the server rendered routes through Netlify functions. But there's a GitHub issue that I'll link to, or a GitHub discussion, where people can share different kind of community adapters they've written. And an adapter is basically you're you're given like a, a JS file that is all of the compiled Elm code for running the server rendering function. But then you generate all the surrounding files for running it in your specific framework and hosting provider. So like there's an express adapter that someone has been writing in the community and it has a way to to wire it up through an express middleware. So it, it's just like a little bit of glue code that helps set things up for a specific provider and framework. Gotcha. And provider is a hosting platform. Right, exactly. And and which, they, you know, they have specific file structures that they expect and, you know, where where do serverless functions live? Or, you know, if it's express if it's you know maybe you're running it in some uh kubernetes context that you need a particular thing whatever it might be you can you can build that into your adapter scripts but basically the contract is that you're given this bundled file that has the the server rendering thing that handles all of the elm pages server rendering you give it like here's the here's the route how am i responding and it gives you the response back, and then you have to do something with that response. So if it's in Express, how do you take a response and turn that into the right data that Express expects for a response? And how do you take the incoming HTTP requests and turn that into the format that Elm Pages expects for an HTTP request with the HTTP method and the incoming URL? So that, that's what an adapter is. Okay, are these fairly simple or are they pretty complicated? They're pretty simple. I mean, the 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 contract is pretty simple because it's just saying I need the incoming HTTP request in a specific format. I give you a function that you call with that specific format of data for the HTTP request. So you might have to adapt your frameworks, you know, Express or Node.js or Koa or whatever it might be. You might have to turn that into a different sort of JSON object for what Elm Pages expects. And then you have to turn it into a response object, and then you have to put some files in a specific place. But the part that Elm Pages gives you is, here's a function to to call the rendering and get a response back, right? And then you just need to wire that up. So yeah, the, the hosting provider is now a big part of web development as well, right? And this is something that we now have to face, if you if at least you want to do server-side rendering and serverless. Yes. Maybe we should talk a bit about the use cases. Yeah, I was thinking like we we still haven't said like what is it for? Was it what is it good for? We said where it was complicated, but <laughs> that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah, like what would you actually do? So for example, if you have a CRUD application, like if you want to have an admin panel where you can manage users, manage user permissions, you know, send some forms to make a database request, and you know, or if you have an e-commerce site and you want to manage back office things, orders, inventory, forms that do that, right? V2 would not have supported those kinds of use cases. At least it wouldn't have given you much help there. It wouldn't have been a great fit for that, right? Because if you're resolving your data at build time, when your data is mostly dynamic and it depends on the user session, the logged in user, it doesn't really help you there. Yeah, so you would either need to rebuild like 
continuously, or you would need to do a lot of the dynamics things in uh, on the client anyway. Right. Yeah, it just wouldn't make sense. Also, if you have a conceptually infinite number of routes, you can't even pre-render all of those routes. So it just wasn't really possible. So now with V3, when you define uh, when you define a pre-rendered route, you do not have access to the request. But when you define a server-rendered route, you do have access to the request. And the request allows you to get the method of the request, the URL, the query params. So, you know, in a, in a pre-rendered route, somebody can load that page with query params, but you don't have them until the page hydrates because the page is rendered before a request is made. So conceptually, they don't exist at that point. But for a server-rendered route, they do exist. Yeah, you also have access to cookies, right? That's right. You have access to all of the headers, including cookies. And there are some high-level abstractions for accessing and setting cookies. And that's a huge part of V3 is that design and that philosophy of using the platform, because I believe it really makes things easier. Like, I believe that cookie-based session management is way easier than JIT token, JWT token-based authentication. Oh, okay. But could you use JWT tokens if you wanted to? You could, but I mean, I don't, I don't think you'd want to. But so, yeah, for, for security reasons too, like there are some advantages to cookie-based authentication. So for example, in the cookie API in Elm Pages v3, the, the default uh, strategy for cookies is HTTP only because that's like a common best practice. And so you can opt into cookies that are visible to JS but by default, they will only be available through HTTP. So if you have a server rendered route and you manage the user through a session, then that cookie, you can't, uh, if somebody injects some cross-site scripting attack script in your, in your page, which of course you'd prefer not to happen, but that's one possible attack vector, they would not have access to the HTTP only cookies. That's what an HTTP only cookie means. Um, when you do uh, whatever it is, document.cookies, it show up there. So, uh, but when you make a request to, to a server at the same origin, it is accessible. Whereas if you make a third party request, the default security policy for, for Elm Pages cookies and, and for, for regular cookies, if you don't explicitly set one, is that those cookies will not be sent to external origins, only to the original origin. So that means that, you know, it's just uh, less to think about for, for, for the attack vectors for people trying to take your cookies. So because if someone gets your session cookie, then they are you, right? Uh, they've successfully hijacked your cookie. If they, if they get that cookie, then, then they're you. So you don't want that to happen. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so with Elm Pages v3, you have access to cookies. There's a, there's a session API that even manages key value pairs of cookies. So it will serialize those key value pairs of strings uh, for you in, in the cookie. And you can give it a list of secrets. It's actually a backend task of a list of secrets because that backend task, uh, you can do environment variables. Because you might want to, you probably want to pull in an environment variable. And an environment variable is accessible through a backend task. So, uh, so you can list out session secrets through these backend tasks. And you give it a list, a backend task of a list of strings, and it will use those to rotate the signing 
so what that means is, so uh, first of all, signing, signing the session, what that means is it's not encrypted, it's signed, uh, which means if you tamper with it, so there's like the raw key value data, you can, you can look at the cookie and see the data that was encoded there directly. I think it's like base64 encoded maybe, but you can base64 decode it and, and just see the, what the values are. But if you change the values, the, the signature, the hash that signed it will not match. So you need the signing secret in order to, so it's tamper proof. So, you know, if it says like user ID is one, two, three, and you say, ah, ha, ha, user ID is one, two, four, then the signing will, will fail. It will not unsign that session and it will rotate through those. So if you give a list of secrets, it will use the first one in the list to sign new requests, but it will, uh, if it fails to unsign it with the first one in the list, it will go through the rest of them to try unsigning it. So you can rotate through your signing secrets. So before you said that an admin page, for instance, was a good use case for the server-side rendered arts. SSRR. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Some, some combination of S's and R's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's better than our Elm Pages review code gen uh, <laughs> naming so far. So admin pages, for instance, are good for this. But is it better than a plain Elm client app? And if so, how? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a different architecture. And um, actually, we kind of we kind of talked about this in in our writing great docs episode a little bit of um, being uh, being clear and straightforward to to help users make decisions about what tools to use in your documentation. And and I talked a little bit about how I put a lot of thought with for Elm Pages V3 into how do I help users make that decision between Elm Land, which is a new version of Elm SPA, or Elm Pages. Elm Pages V3. Since since now there's a lot of overlap in the kinds of use cases they can handle, right? You could do an admin panel in Elmland. You could do an ad, admin panel in uh, in Elm Pages V3. And to me, that the answer is like it depends on what kind of architecture you want to use. And of course, like you know, do you want to use backend tasks to get that initial data? Do you want to do, do you want to use the platform and use cookie-based authentication and use the URL as much as possible? Because uh, that's like a, a key philosophy around Elm Pages. It has this philosophy of use the platform. It has an API for um, submitting forms. Yeah, which we did in a whole episode about, like two actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. So see those episodes for more about the form design. But but basically, that's like a core philosophy of Elm Pages is the web has forms. And so let's use forms because if we use things that the web has built in opinions on, we can piggyback on those to make things simpler for the developer to, to write and rely on these web standards to reduce the amount of boilerplate and, you know, uh, it, it, things just line up nicely. But, you know, if you buy into that philosophy of use the platform and you want to work that way, that's great. If you want to kind of deviate from the platform, then uh, you, you might not have a great experience with it because it sort of is like designed to work really nicely if you buy into this architecture and this philosophy. So that's what I realized. It's about buying into an approach. 
Yeah. If you want to do the right things, then use Elm Pages. If you want to do the wrong things, use something else. Gotcha. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, there are there are different. You can do very bespoke things, right? And you know, if you're doing like a Google Docs thing with you know multiplayer editing where people can see the curses of other people and stuff, it's like, well, okay, like use the platform is great, but what's the platform for that? Like, it doesn't really get me anything, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. Elm Pages might not be a good good choice there, right? But if it's like a if if it's an admin panel thing. So like if you're trying to do a post, you know, hit the submit button on a form and create a new entry in an admin panel. Then with Elm Pages V3, like it there's a certain resilience because it works before the JavaScript hydrates, which might seem like nitpicking, but it's like a real thing. Uh, that 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 can happen. So it's like one one less thing to think about. Like you know, do I need to have the button disabled before the page is hydrated and stuff? Um, and it's also a, a philosophy of uh, you know, it's a certain performance philosophy where it's you know about having your data result, you know, your initial data resolved to reduce loading spinners. But if you're not heavily optimizing, you know, for example, having your your data center co-located with where your Elm Pages app is hosted, you might not get those performance benefits. But if you do, then you you don't have to incur the cost of making multiple round trips and incurring the latency cost between the, the client and your data center. Instead, you pay that very small latency cost, that hopefully approaching zero latency cost of resolving data from the Elm Pages backend to your data center. You do all the little round trip requests, which are very short to resolve all of your initial page data that you need. And then you serve a fully hydrated page and you do your processing of that data on the back end, and you don't need to ship that code that was used to resolve that data in the back end. So like that's, but if like not everybody's going to want to architect their app that way. And, you know, and also like Elm Pages gives you an architecture for reaching through and sort of directly grabbing your data, that doesn't mean that you can't hit a GraphQL API or something like that. But you can you can make a database request from a server rendered route and directly resolve data, you know, often using like a uh, backend test.custom, which allows you to define a custom Node.js async function to, you know, receive JSON data and return JSON data that will be resolved in that backend task. But under the hood, Elm Pages uses ports, but it it wires that all up for you. So yeah, you define you define a file called custom backend task.ts or .js, and you export async functions, and then they take one argument, which is the JSON encoded value that that you call that you pass in from Elm, and then it, they return a JSON value and you deco- you give a decoder for that in Elm. So yeah, you can, so again, that's like a philosophical architectural choice. Like, is that an appealing way to work? Because if you're not getting benefit from that, this architecture might, you know, it might be trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. For the performance, uh, just so that I get it. So the server that is so the server that the client hits and asks like, hey, I want this 
page at this URL, that will communicate, that, that server will, co will communicate with some database or some things, hopefully on the same server or very close to. And then it will give back a page that is filled with a lot more data that it would have fetched otherwise on the client. So the, the time to first paint might be slower because the server is doing more computations and more requests. So it, it will take longer to resolve. So you will have a blank, blank page for a tiny bit longer in the good use case, I guess. But once you get the data, it's all there or almost all there. Whereas with a regular M application and full front-end client, you would have a um, time to first paint that, that is very short because you just ask for a static file. But then it goes to fetch a lot of JavaScript, a lot of files. And in the init, it makes an HTTP request to get a lot of data. And then once all those things are done, then you have a page uh, that has all the, all the data. Is that correct? Well, kind of. I, I, the time to first paint being slower is not necessarily the case, though, because consider the time to first paint for an Elm application. So if you, when is it painting your Elm application, right? It's paint, like, basically, one question is, uh, what's faster to paint? A, you know, some HTML that you return or some JavaScript, right? With the JavaScript, it needs to probably uh, make a follow-up request for a JavaScript file, right? So that's a, a one more step in the waterfall that it needs to do. Which you don't in the server. Right. The HTML is just there right away. The, you need to parse the JavaScript, which uh, takes some time. And while you're parsing the JavaScript, that's a blocking operation. So it's not doing anything else. And then you, and then you can render the page. Uh, but then, of course, what, now that you've rendered the page and, and initialized the JavaScript application, you're going to need to go and trigger your HTTP requests to get your initial data, right? Which, so yes, now you've painted it, but now you need to go ask for your initial data. Uh, you don't even have that yet. May, maybe you even need to do a JIT authentication handshake or whatever first. And so all of these things are going to need to um, happen after the paint, right? That's not even before the paint. But the, the getting to the first paint, it's a question of what's going to be faster, serving and rendering that HTML or serving and rendering that JavaScript, right? And it's actually not, not an obvious answer, which it's going to depend on, on a case-by-case -case basis, but there's a, there's a lot that needs to happen to initialize that JavaScript as well. So that's like, that's part of that, philosophy of that architecture, right? Is if you can, if you can get your uh, data resolution on your backend down to, you know, 50, 100 milliseconds or whatever, then you can have a, a pretty compelling story where like, all right, I resolved, I resolved the data, rendered out this HTML. Now you get a first paint. And so you can actually get a, a faster first paint. Uh, of course, if it's a uh, pre-rendered route, then you don't even need to resolve the data and you can serve it through a CDN. You could serve it at the edge, but you can also serve it at the edge, you know, with um, a server rendered route as well. And you can use caching, you know, you can use a Redis cache to optimize your data loading and 
all sorts of this. so it really depends on your architecture right but yeah but uh, wh what did you mean with rendering at the edge like i, I can get for the uh, static rendered routes or pre-rendered routes but for service side rendered routes right so edge functions are sort of an emerging approach to to uh, to serverless functions so Th that's one specific th that's one specific technique in serverless That's right. Yeah, that is uh, something that some hosting providers are are starting to really uh, build out a lot of a lot of features around. But uh, yeah, so like uh, edge uh, edge functions as opposed to server serverless functions. So a serverless function might be US East. You know, it might be an AWS Lambda in US East. So if you're you mean specifically in one location, and that's it. That's right. So there's some JavaScript code that some US East Lambda will be able to pick up and execute. And somebody in Tokyo hits your server rendered route and it they go all the way to US East and they request that data. And they and they have to go to US East. Like there's only one copy, one server that can do this? Yeah, and maybe there are a couple or you know, something like that. But The edge edge functions are this idea that let's put them at, at more places, you know, more you know ser serverless locations where we can do do the same thing as serverless functions where you you call a function as a service or whatever, but it's distributed across more locations physically. Then of course you do need to think about your data center story, right? Because if you're calling You know, if the server is serving it up from a closer location, but it's farther from your data center, that's not good either. And there are places that are exploring ways to to do more sort of distributed edge data. You know, uh, whether it's key value or you know NoSQL or SQL style databases or whatever. A lot of things are being explored there. It's a it's a it's it's a big big world yeah it sounds a little bit complicated in practice it is it's hard to navigate yeah it, it sounds pretty simple but also like how to optimize all that totally yeah. totally right. but on the other hand like you can you know have if you've got your data center and you've got an express server you can serve up some elm pages routes too right so that's And so if you want to use Elm Pages with a, an edge architecture, uh, would you? how would you do that? Would you just define it in on Netlify or whatever your hosting platform might be? Or do you have to write an adapter for that or both? Yeah, you would need an adapter. The Netlify one specifically, I'm not sure that they that Elm Pages works with Netlify edge functions right now because they use Dino. And right now, Elm Pages uh, is node-based. It doesn't have like a... De it's really hard to decouple between different JS frameworks. But so that's definitely one thing um, on my radar. But uh, but yeah, at the moment, they, they use Dino and it is not... I don't think it's compatible with it. Okay, interesting. But yeah, so um, so server-rendered... It's a big world, but I, I think the... Um, It's easy to get lost in those details, but I would say for for people thinking about building something with this, the bottom line is, you know, again, it's this this pattern of bootstrapping your page with data from the server. And 
Elm Pages V3 is an abstraction for, for being able to basically automate the glue code for that pattern, right? So, and again, like you, you might not want to use that pattern. And if you don't want to use that pattern, then, then Elmland is probably a better fit because it doesn't, it's not bound to that pattern. But Elm Pages uh, V3 allows you to use that pattern in a really seamless way. That's sort of its core design and philosophy. And, uh, and it has a lot of things around that, like the session API and, and the request API for looking at request data. You can even define API routes uh, where you can write pure Elm functions that respond to an API route. So if you want to have an API route that, it, that doesn't have a view, it's not a page, and uh, you want to respond to a webhook with a Stripe you know, some sort of header that has some Stripe signing secret. So, you know, it's coming from Stripe and you can, uh, respond, you know, respond to a payment being received by Stripe through a webhook. You can, you can build that, uh, in, in pure Elm and resolve it with backend tasks and even directly make database requests to manage things. So did you just casually say, oh, by the way, we can do backend in Elm pages? <laughs> That's that's the headline exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that was not clear enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should have uh, done a. <laughs> more that was not clear to me. That from the start. Yeah. You can you can write backends. You can write APIs. You could write a JSON API endpoint. I mean, it's pure. You know, it is. You can write pure Elm code that can that can respond to server requests with the incoming. HTTP request payload, whether that is a route module or an API route, which doesn't have a, a, a view. You can do that. You could do that with on pages v3. I didn't understand that you could do non-view things or non-HTML things with it. That's very cool. Yeah. And you can you can pre-render your API routes too, also known as files. But uh but yeah, it's the uh you can you don't have access to the HTTP request, but if you, you know, for example, uh, the Elm Radio podcast feed um, is, uh, it's an RSS file. That is an API route. But if we wanted to make that a, uh, something that, uh, you know, if, if we really wanted uh, to be able to just instantly go live with an Elm Radio episode at a very specific time, which we don't really have that problem because we have, you know, like a specific time that an episode releases and we can just do that with a build step and, and have it through a cron job. But for, for something where you wanted to be able to like drop something at a specific time and have that update in real time, we could have it be a server rendered API route. And then the RSS feed, and we could take that same route that is now pre-rendered and say, okay, make it server rendered. And now I have access to the incoming request. And now, okay, here's a here's an Elm Radio Pro feed. And you're going to need authentication. So you give some query parameter or some cookie or whatever it might be to get your Pro Elm Radio feed for for your user authentication. We could do that. Pretty interesting. <laughs> so I know you've taken a lot of inspiration from other frameworks that deal in the same space, uh, mostly in the JavaScript land. Mm -hmm. Tools like Remix and Astro and 
and I can't come up with any other ones. <laughs> and like, so now you've opened up Elm to that space to things that are SEO um, performance as well. So how does Elm Pages compare to those now? And also like, are there any parts of the fact that it's written in Elm that makes it much nicer or much more performance secure? Like, why would someone who is familiar with both JavaScript and Elm choose Elm Pages over the other ones? Right. Yeah. So Elm Pages V3 is heavily inspired by Remix.js. So shout out to Remix and the Remix team for, um, I think, paving paving a path uh, that is really exciting for sort of a uh, web standards based approach to full stack front end frameworks, you know, with this idea of progressively enhancing forms and, you know, heavily relying on, you know, basically this idea of let's, let's make a lot of our docs just linking to MDN and saying, well, here is how cookies work, which, uh, you know, if you're, if you've been a front end developer for the last five, 10 years, maybe you've forgotten or don't know how cookies work, or, you know, maybe you've forgotten or don't know how, how form, how forms work. Uh, like, because you, you know, it's you very lazy default on their default or whatever, wh whatever your framework uses, whatever your front end tool uses, but you don't actually use the built-in platform features for these things. And they're saying, well, it, maybe let's enhance what the platform gives us, but use that as a starting point. So we have this baked in set of opinions that actually works really well with the browser and we can leverage existing functionality there. So uh, yeah, big shout out to Remix. One thing that um, obviously is different between uh, you know Remix and, and Elm Pages is Elm Pages is Elm. Oh, and, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Remix they use a lot of um, TypeScript, and there are some cool features for bridging the types between the uh, front end and the back end using some of these TypeScript features. But of course, you know Elm, you get more confidence in that you get custom types and all these things we like about Elm. So that's, you know, that's, that's one obvious thing that is a difference. In addition to that, there's just a different philosophy between JavaScript and, and Elm, and that really shows up in these APIs. So for example, there's a lot of, I mean, if you're using Remix, one thing I notice is you end up doing like a lot of casting. For example, you, you receive some form data and you say, okay, well, I expect this to be a string. I expect this to be an int. I expect to be able to parse this as an int or whatever, right? But you're still, you know, and you can use things like Zod, which definitely improves things and gives you more of an Elm decoder style approach to that. But, you know, it, it just, just like you would choose between Elm or JavaScript in any context, it's a similar set of trade-offs with TypeScript and, and Elm there where Yeah, you can sort of get some of the safety of Elm if you use things like Zod and stuff, but it's it's never like all the way there. And for you know, for people like us, like that's really important to us, and and would be a, a reason to to use Elm in itself. Mm -hmm. So it, when you communicate from the client to the backend, do you get a specific type, or do you just get JSON, which you then need to encode and decode in Elm pages? I mean, you get a specific type. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the whole that's the whole game is you so you define in your route module, 
you define a data function where you define a backend task. If it's a server-rendered route, then you have access to the HTTP request and you can respond with a backend task based on that incoming HTTP request. And if it's pre-rendered, you don't have access to that HTTP request. And uh, then that backend task resolves to uh, your route module's data type. So type alias data equals record with user, name, ID, product, product name, whatever, whatever your route is showing. You know, if, if it's a, uh, showing a um, product and it has inventory and it has whatever, you get that, that, that's your type alias data. And then you just have that in, you have that in init, you have that in view. So you just do app, you have an app argument in your view function and you just do app.data.inventory count, app.data.product's name. And it's not a, it's not a maybe, it's not a remote data, it's not a result. You just have, have that data. It's just there. Yeah, so that's the data that you get from the server when you're on the client, right? But if the client wants to send data to the backend. Gotcha. Okay, so yes. And this, this is kind of a bit of a can of worms, but yes, Elm Pages v3 has something called actions in server-rendered route modules as well. And that is, that's heavily inspired by Remix.js. That name uh, comes from Remix.js. I think they got the name from like a form has an action attribute in, in a web form. So the action function is much like the data function. Uh, the, the, the data function is a backend task that resolves on initial page load. Uh, that's your initial route data. And the action... So the action is there for non-get requests. So if you make a non-get request, such as a, a form submission through a post method, um, then that would, uh, that would come into your action function. Uh, on the server, it's going to resolve your action function instead of your data function for that. And that will, um, that will update your route. So and there, this is like one of the core things of, of Elm Pages v3 is... Um, there's a whole form API for, for working with this, where you can define a form declaratively. And, it, and also, this is one of the big differences between Elm Pages and Remix. Um, at least for, for me, this was like an important design space, was like creating a very Elmy way to sort of parse form data that gives you the real-time validations and all these things. So you just... You know, with Elm Pages v3, you de you declare your form, which has the parser and the view for it, and then Elm Pages takes care of of showing the real time client side validation errors. And when you hit submit, it will submit the form to your, to your action function. Uh, so you can in your action function, you can create a new item uh, when somebody clicks submit on uh, you know, or you you update the inventory, and then you you hit the submit button and now you receive that in your action. You get the parsed form, which is either successfully parsed or has errors. It parses into the same value. So you can even access the value that it parsed into on the client side and you can use that to do optimistic or pending UI. Optim uh, optimistic UI being assuming that it was successful and showing the UI as if it succeeded before it does while it's pending. And pending UI being a less optimistic version of that where you show a spinner that something is in progress or something. So uh, I, I have a, 
a demo app that people can try out a live version of, or they can uh, look at the source code. Uh, of It's a modified version of uh, Evan's to-do MVC LMAP, but it adds database persistence using an NPM package called Prisma with, um, with Postgres. And it directly manages the database request through Elm Page's custom backend tasks. And, uh, and it gives you, so it gives you full database persistence. It uses magic link authentication. So you, so Elm Pages itself will send you an email with a magic link that you click on. When you click on the link, it sets a session cookie that uh, signs you in. Because you click the link, so it you've confirmed that it's you, and now now you're signed in by clicking that link. That's what magic link authentication is. So it that's implemented in Elm with a couple couple of very small bindings through custom backend tasks to to do to use the crypto API to do encryption and decryption, um, and and then doing Prisma for the database persistence. And the rest is all in Elm Pages directly and um, manages the cookies and all that. Gets the logged in users to do items, and it shows some pending UI. So as you're, so if you enter a new to do item, hit hit create or whatever the button says, you will see the new item show up in your to do list with a little loading spinner next to it, and that's all done declaratively. So the same logic for parsing that form that is used to parse that that form action on the on the server to parse a, an action you know of creating an item deleting an item editing an item checking an item yeah checking an item off checking all items off those are these actions it uses the same form parsers on the back end to respond in the action to actually handle performing those tasks on the database but it also uses those same parsers to say, what are the in-flight actions that are happening? And it uses that to derive all of the pending state of all of the of your to-do items. So if you delete something, it can instantly show it as deleted because it knows there is an in-flight form that is deleting this item. So I'm just going to show it as deleted. And... Uh, and Elm Pages has, this is one of the really big features of Elm Pages V3, is it has all of the in-flight form submissions are managed for you. So you just run your form parsers on it, but you don't have to wire anything up to your model. So with no model or managing anything in your update, you just say, what are the currently submitting forms? Here's my form parser. What are the currently submitting form actions? And then you derive your pending UI from that state. So I recommend taking a look at that to-do example, the live demo and the code. It's like, I think it's one of the coolest features of Elm Pages V3. Like it's, it's what I'm the most excited about. That does sound very, very good. Yeah. I'm very curious. I'm going to look at it <laughs> when I can. I love that declarative approach. You're not imperatively, uh, you know, if they click delete on this, then add it to this list of deleting things, or it's just like, no, there's a list of all the actions and you kind of just have that and say, okay, well, if I have these pending actions, then what is my UI state? And you derive it from that. So that's one less, that's one less thing that could go wrong. Like this, for me, this is like one of my big opinions about coding, I guess, is when things are more declarative, there are fewer things that you can get wrong. So Elm Pages is very declarative i hope i hope people will agree kind of has right it, it is elm 
And that's the way we do things. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Maybe one last thing to mention is uh, Elmpages v3 has built-in v integration as well. So the dev server, the dev server still has the same hot data reloading that v2 had. You you know if you if you have a page that reads from a file and you modify that file, it automatically knows that the page you're looking at depended on the file you touched, and it will hot reload the the backend task for that for that route. In addition to that, uh, so try out the dev server. It was a lot of work. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it integrated. So cool. <laughs> it has a built-in integration with Vite.js. So now you can um, you can read about that more in the announcement blog post. But but yeah, you can define your own custom uh, Vite configuration, and the dev server will use it, and the production build will will use it as well. Yeah. So that's on pages V3. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a lot of information. Yes. The, the docs are are big uh, because the API for the the tool is big because I mean it's doing a lot of things in practice like like oh well let's just add these primitives to read files. Oh, well now we can render things to <laughs> we now we can make APIs. Now we can do a lot of things. Oh, now we need cookies. Oh, now we need sessions. Now we need forms. Now we ah, <laughs> like it's, it's a lot. I know yeah. it's been a, a very big journey for you. Like yes. I think you've been working on this for like a year and a half. Yeah. So it's been crazy. I, I'm really glad that you can now focus on something else. Even though I know you're still gonna work on Elm Pages, like that's that's you, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I, I hope people like it. I hope people also like the all the cool st stuff you 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 made possible with this, including just the tiny thing you mentioned at some point, saying like, "Oh, we can do backend." <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I hope people enjoy it. Uh, where, yeah, where can people go if if they want to learn more? Like you have an announcement blog post. We will add that to the show notes. Elm-pages.com, I'm guessing. That's exactly right. Elm-pages.com. We've got a doc site there and a and a blog. Um, I might might write another blog post or two in the coming weeks. And um, uh, join the uh, Elm Pages Slack channel. Um, I'm I'm very active there. Happy to answer questions. Check out the discussions in the Elm Pages GitHub. Yeah, like let let me know what you build with it. Let me know what questions you have. Let me know what docs you think could be improved. Um, I would love to hear from people and 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 see what they end up building with it. All right. And Yarun, until next time. Until next time. <laughs>